Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us this evening to come to your word, to contemplate not only our sins, but your mercy and your grace. We ask for hearts that are open to hearing the message of your good news and to putting it into practice in tangible and meaningful ways. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you all here this evening. Um, it's a little bit more than I was expecting. I mean, I knew it was going to feel a little bit tight, but I, I appreciate the fact that there, all of you have come out uh, to an Ash Wednesday service, one that, uh, as, as our brother here has said, is a little bit strange. Uh, it's a different kind of church service. If you are not used to this, um, you're going to be in for a different kind of thing. And what everybody knows about Ash Wednesday is that you, you, you're supposed to get ashes on your forehead, right? The funny thing is, and I'm speaking as, a, as an Anglican Protestant minister, speaking to mostly Anglicans and Protestants here, is that the ashes on Ash Wednesday are a pretty recent thing in terms of what we usually do on Ash Wednesday. It's only been the last 40 years that we have started putting ashes on our foreheads again on Ash Wednesday, which is a little weird, right? Because it's called Ash Wednesday. But for hundreds of years, we left the ashes behind, um, but we still kept Ash Wednesday as the beginning of a season called Lent, a season of penitence, a season of repentance, same thing, uh, a season of drawing near to the Lord in faith and reestablishing ourselves again and again in the gospel, but also a season which continued to be a season of fasting. Now, I don't know, how many of you have heard a sermon about fasting before? Just a show of hands. Okay, that's good. That is also more than I thought. Um, I don't think growing up I ever heard a sermon about fasting in the church that I grew up in. That is, it, it was something that individuals might do here and there, but it was not systematically taught. We were not told, well, this is how you fast. All I knew about fasting was that you have to give something up. I grew up in a denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, where there was even a period where they tried to encourage a Lent-like thing that we all did. They didn't call it Lent, but it was 40 days before Easter. We all <laughs> were supposed to do the 40-day adventure together, which involved extra Bible readings, and fastings were a part of that, and they were, it was kind of a challenge that they were even having the kids do. This kind of idea of discipline and of fasting, I think, sometimes resonates with us, but I think many of us who come with Protestant sensibilities, modern sensibilities, we look at this thing and we say, I know, but isn't that something that the Catholics do? Isn't, isn't that the kind of thing that we are trying to avoid? When we say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, isn't fasting one of those things that, I mean, it seems like we're kind of trying to earn our way into heaven by not eating a cheeseburger or something, you know? I mean, isn't that the kind of thing that, that, that we, as we proclaim the gospel, are putting behind us? And the answer from the time of the Reformation the answer from our church, and I believe the answer from Scripture, is no. Fasting has always been one of the practices of the people of God. And it is an important practice for all of us to have in our spiritual toolkit. As we grow in faith, as we grow in the knowledge and love of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, fasting is an important way in which we are made like Christ. Now, what I want to do this evening in our time together. I don't want to go on too long, but I want to address the issue of fasting and explain why I believe that 
we should pay attention, not just to fasting in general, but to fasting during the 40 days of Lent. We have, I'm speaking to people who have gathered here on Ash Wednesday to begin this process of Lent. So I hope I'm with a friendly crowd. I hope you're listening to me and saying, okay, I want what he's saying to be true, but I'd also want to convince you. Now, a couple of caveats right here at the beginning as we begin to look at our lessons. And I'm going to be a little bit more topical today than I usually am. I'm going to be covering more of scripture and more of church history to try and make some of my points here. But I want to start with some caveats. So the first caveat that I want to say today about fasting is that it will not make you right with God. Okay? There is no merit in fasting. That is, God is not going to look down on you and having seen all of your sins, having seen all of your problems, having seen all of your brokenness and messed upness, he is not going to look at you skipping a meal and saying, well, she's good. Okay? That's not what fasting is about. The only thing that can make you right with God, and I believe that this is made very clear in our reading from 2 Corinthians 5 this evening, the only thing that can make you right with God is the fact that Jesus came and he lived your life for you. He died your death for you. And now he is at the right hand of the Father, ever living and interceding for you. Jesus Christ is the one who is able to make you right with God. And if you have any other thing that you're trying to use in your life to make yourself right with God, whether that's fasting, whether that's praying, whether that's going to church or reading your Bible or whatever it is, none of those things are going to make you right with God. What makes you right with God is the blood of Jesus and his life that he is living for you right now. Okay? That said, fasting is going to be a really important part of what that life in Jesus looks like. Okay? So that's my first big caveat. <laughs> this is not going to make you right with God. And the second thing is that fasting looks different for everyone. Now, there are some main contours of what we as human beings and as Christians can do as part of a Lenten, as part of a fasting Lenten discipline. And it may look similar from person to person. However, it's going to look different. And I know this especially because my wife just had three kids in the last three years. Four years. I guess it's been four years now. Pregnant women are not supposed to be fasting like somebody like I am. Little tiny children are not going to fast in the same way. If you have a medical condition, I do not recommend fasting in the same way that we would recommend for most people without consulting with your doctor, okay? And that also translates into other aspects of fasting. It's, been, it's become popular these days when, you know, when you're talking to somebody about Lent to say, well, what are you giving up for Lent? I mean, how many of us have heard of digital fasts? Anybody? A few people, right? We're going to say, well, what are you giving up for Lent? Instagram. Well, you can understand why this would be appealing to someone. On the one hand, this may more, be more difficult than actually giving up food. Giving up your attention to social media might be more difficult. And I want to respect that and I want to say, go for it. However, with that caveat in place, I also want to say that there is real value to getting down to the nitty gritty of what your body needs when it comes to fasting. And I want to encourage you in the direction of actually giving up food. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual at all. I mean, shouldn't you be, you know, just praying more or focusing more of your attention on God? Well, yes, but God gave you a body for a reason. And this is one of the first things that we're going to get into as to why has God ordained fasting in the first place? Why is this something that not only did Jesus do, but we as the people of God are called to do? And I want to direct your attention 
first all the way back to Genesis. I'm going to do that by opening with the words of Jesus. Jesus says, when you fast, don't do it like those other people are doing it. Don't do it for other people. You're supposed to do it for the Lord. You're supposed to do it for yourself. This is something internal to you. This is not for anyone else to see. Implying thereby that there is some real benefit to fasting. And he wants you to be able to get the benefit of fasting. Come with me back to Genesis, as I said. Genesis chapter 2. As many commentators have pointed out, Genesis chapter 2 is all about food, right? God takes Adam and Eve, he creates them, he puts them in the Garden of Eden, and there, what does he do? He says, you have all the fruits of all the trees to eat, right? Except for what? Except for the fruit of two trees. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And were they supposed to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, of course not. We all know that, all the way from back in Sunday school. But the tree of life, the tree of life, they were also not given to eat of. We know this by the end of the story in Genesis chapter 3, when God says we need to put a cherubim in front of the tree of life so that the man does not stretch forth his hand and take from the tree of life to eat it. In other words, they were given a fast. They were not allowed to eat either the tree of the fruit of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's really a tongue twister. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were not to eat from the tree of life. There was a fast that Adam and Eve were intended to undergo in those opening chapters of Genesis that was to be consummated by them coming to a feast, to actually eat of the tree of life. And we see this as uh, as, as we've mentioned earlier. When we go all the way to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, what do we see? We see the tree of life and its fruit is open and accessible to all the nations of the world. We see at the end of the book of Revelation an invitation being given out to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb. In other words, what we see from the very beginning of Scripture is that a feast has been prepared for the people of God. A feast of eternal life, a feast where the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is there at the, as the centerpiece and as the host of that feast as we come and we receive from Him the eternal life that He has promised in His glory from before all the worlds. This eternal life will be given to us in that great feast on the last day. But, and this is one of the primary principles, fasting is necessary to prepare for the feast. We have to prepare ourselves for that feast. Now, that was true even before sin entered the picture. But, of course, when it did, fasting also picked up other dimensions as well. What was once only a probation now also becomes a discipline by which uh, we are confronted with our sins, where we have to engage with sorrow for sin. And this is natural. For instance, I want you to think about how many of you struggle, show of hands, how many of you struggle to have an appetite if you really feel guilty about something? Now, some of you may be the opposite. You get super hungry. But anybody struggle? I struggle. Like, if I feel really bad about something, it's really hard for me to eat. Now, while that is true, that isn't always, always the case. There, one of the... One of the difficulties that we have as sinful human beings is wanting to be sorry for our sins, wanting to feel remorse, wanting to lament our sins. And yet, as was said of Esau after he started eating that mess of pottage, right, that he got from Jacob, 
said he wanted to repent, but he couldn't. He couldn't bring himself to actually feel sorry for what he did. The way that our bodies ordinarily work is that rather than things starting in the heart and moving outwards, that is, as I said before, I feel guilty and so I have a hard time eating. Actually, the way that God has created us is often the opposite. If we want to discipline our own emotions and affections, sometimes we have to change our habits with our bodies to make ourselves feel bad, to make ourselves feel sorrow, to make ourselves feel wretched. And that means deliberately saying, all right, not only am I going to fast because I don't want to eat food, but maybe I want to eat food, but I am going to deliberately cut myself off from this food in order to feel the sorrow, begin to feel the sorrow that I really should be feeling. That is, spiritual change often works from the outside in rather than just from the inside out. And so we see, for instance, God commanding his people on the Day of Atonement to afflict themselves, to prepare to meet with the Lord. He tells them on, at Mount Sinai before they go up and feast with him on the holy mountain, their elders on their behalf, the, the elders of Israel, to sit down with God and have that covenant meal. The people are to fast for three days leading up until that time. There's this preparation of introspection, of repentance, of sorrow, of preparing ourselves by afflicting ourselves in order to sit at that feast. These moments of probation become opportunities for us to redirect our heart. And when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, fasting becomes an opportunity for us to give up good things that God has given us in order to redirect our heart towards the things that are most important. Let me say that again. Fasting becomes an opportunity for us to release our heart from the good things that God has given us to prepare it for the even better things that he has for us. This is why, when I was in university, and I decided one year that I was going to give up cussing for Lent. It's not really what Lent is about, is it? And I tried hard. I was really good at it. I, it, was, it took everything that I had. I was quite, I was, used a lot of curse words back then. But that's not really what it's about. It's not about giving up bad things. It's about giving up good things. It's about giving up good food. It's about giving up the things that we enjoy, that God has put in our life to enjoy. Because by, as Paul says, disciplining my body, making it my slave, I can train myself, myself more and more, orient myself more and more towards the good things that God has for me so that I am not a slave to my own belly, to my own desires, to the things that naturally occur to me. And if we cannot engage in this kind of discipline, we cannot adequately progress in the Christian life. If you can't skip a meal for Jesus, what can you do? Again, this is not to get in his good favor. This is to grow in your relationship and in your, uh, and in your imitation of him. And this is what we see, as I mentioned, all through scripture. We see the ways in which Israel fasted in the wilderness for 40 years, eating only the bread from heaven and, you know, a few quail that dropped down and made their belly sick. Until when? They got to the promised land and they feasted of what God had for them. Jesus himself went through 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Why? Because there was a joy that was set before him. He endured 
not only those 40 days of fasting, he not only endured the pains and the rejection of the people that he was surrounded with, he went to the cross and having fasted during that time, right? He went to his disciples and said, this is the last time we're eating until I feast with you again in the kingdom. He endured the cross for you. He was made sin for you on that cross and having taken your sin and borne it on his shoulders and buried it in his body on the third day when he rose again from the dead. He did it for you. And as he is calling you to say, follow me. This is an opportunity for us to discipline ourselves for greater trials, greater crosses, and greater joys that lie ahead of us. And I think if you have ever fasted before, you begin to get the idea of what I'm talking about. Because when you are fasting and when you are you're beginning to feel that sort of lightheadedness and everything else. You begin to realize how much you depend on the things of the world and how much, when you start to depend on God alone to sustain you, He really does come through for you. So, fasting is for us. It's for our benefit. It's not so that we can show everybody how great a job we're doing at fasting or how great of Christians we are or look at me, I gave up Facebook for Lent or what, you know, whatever it is that people are doing. It is so that you can discipline your body, your spirit, and your mind, and to join Christ in his Christ-likeness. Now, the second question then becomes, but why do we have to do it during the 40 days of Lent? And here, I want to say, it's not just because, we don't just fast because we want to be like Christ. The second main reason that we fast is because we are a part of his body. Fasting, ordinarily, is a corporate discipline. And the reason for this is, I think, pretty intuitive. Last month, my wife had a medical procedure that required her to fast for a few days ahead of time. It was a gradual fast. Initially, she had to give up, you know, seeds and and uh, skins of things, tough red meat and that kind of thing. But by the end of it, she was pretty much on a liquid fast and then finally just drinking water and then nothing. It wasn't very long into this fast that I came home and I was getting lightheaded myself and so I just, you know, I got a few peanuts out and I was eating them in the kitchen and she passed by and she looked at me. And she got so angry. <laughs> I'm saying this. She knows that, you know, I've, I tell people about this. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, how can you do this to me? I said, what? You're eating peanuts in front of me. You know I can't have peanuts. And I thought, you know, I'm not even like eating a sandwich. Right now. I'm just eating a few peanuts to keep myself from. She's like, can you do it somewhere else? Okay, fine. But it is excruciatingly difficult to try and fast when other people are eating around you, isn't it? In fact, one of, the, one of the great controversies in the early Anglican church, before the Reformation, back in the 8th century, one of the great controversies was when we were going to have Easter. The problem was is that there were two traditions. There was the Celtic tradition, and then there was the Benedictine tradition, and they kept different calendars. They celebrated Easter on a different day, and their Lents didn't match up, and the king was married to a woman, to his queen, and they were on different calendars. And the king said, all right, this ends now. We are fixing this. And they had the Synod of Whitby. It's a whole thing. It is so difficult to fast by 
yourself. And this is a good thing. It is a good thing because when one part of the body is being deprived of nutrients, the other part of the body is being deprived as well. Now we, as Christians, feast together. We are called to celebrate those feasts, right? Isaiah has that prophecy that on the mountain of the Lord, all the nations of the earth are going to be gathered and there will be a feast where God will swallow up death forever. And that rich food will be poured out for everyone. This is not an individual takeout feast. This is everyone coming together and feasting together at the mountain of the Lord. There's an expression in Spanish, el que come solo, muere solo. Anybody know what that means? Any Spanish speakers? Whoever eats alone, dies alone. alone. (laughs) We're supposed to feast in each other's company. Well, the same thing applies for the fasting. We are called to fast together. Our reading from 2 Corinthians this evening, Jesus is made like us, right? He comes and he takes our place. He takes our burdens. He is made sin for us. And then Paul turns around and says, and this is basically what I'm doing for you. I am undergoing hardships. I am undergoing beatings. I am undergoing all of these things. Why? So that I can reach you for the gospel. And you are also suffering these persecutions. Paul says, I am not exempt from the burdens that you are carrying as people who are suffering for the gospel. Rather, even though Paul was a man of education and wealth and status, he was willing to become all things for all people in order to win them for the gospel. And that meant not only giving of what he had, but taking on the sufferings and the lacks of of others. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Which means not only do we share with them out of our bounty for the people in our lives who are in need, who are suffering, who are destitute, but seeing what they are going through, we say, I'm going to join in with you. The origins of Lent, coming back to Lent, the origins of Lent have to do with the practice of baptism. Baptism in the early church was almost always celebrated on Easter Sunday. Usually at the Easter vigils, the night before, the people who were being baptized would be brought into the water and they would come out and they would receive Holy Communion for the first time. It was a a tremendous moment of joy in the life of the church to see people who had been preparing for baptism for at least a year, usually three years, and sometimes for decades finally be brought into the whole life of the church. But as a part of the preparation, as a part of the preparation for baptism, you have a good night, sir. You too, thank you, sir. Yep. Thank you so much. As part of the preparation for baptism, those who are about to be baptized would go through a whole process of fasting, teaching, catechizing, study. They would have almost daily meetings with the bishop as he would be teaching them. And, and abstaining from food was a huge part of this. It was part of that, what you could call, spiritual boot camp for the Christian life. And you weren't expected to fast all the time as a Christian, but you could fast for 40 days. Like Jesus fasted for 40 days after he was baptized, you could fast for 40 days before your baptism as a way of preparation. Now, what happened in the church was that at the same time that those people who were preparing for baptism, who had put in their names for baptism, were undergoing that fasting, Another group of people also began to fast as well. The people who, because of their sin, not just 
personal private sin, but outward public sin had been cut off from the life of the church, what we call excommunicated. That is, they'd done something so bad, you weren't allowed to even be there present while they were serving communion. They also began the practice of fasting and abstaining and using that as a time of penitence in preparation for Easter with the goal of being restored into the full fellowship of the church at Easter. That's the amazing thing. And I think this gets to the heart of what Paul is talking about as he's discuss discussing the gospel. Is that the church looked at these groups of people that were fasting and they said, you know what, we're not going to let you do it alone. We're going to come alongside and fast with you. The entire church began to fast during Lent because they wanted to accompany those who weren't even baptized Christians yet or those who had done things that were so bad that they had been cut off from the life of the church. They wanted to accompany both of those groups in their fasting and preparation because we are one body in Christ. And this goes into some of the basic traditions and habits that we have around how to do Lent and how to and how to fast. One of the things that, especially if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you know you're supposed to eat during Lent is what? Anybody? Okay, not many people from a Roman Catholic background. Fish, right? How many of you had heard of that? You're supposed to eat fish on Fridays and fish during Lent and that kind of thing. It's the whole thing. But why fish? When I was serving as a, as a missionary in Belize, I, I, it, it, the country's about half Roman Catholic. And so Lent, Fish fries were a huge thing. And people would go to the restaurants on Fridays during Lent, and they would order $20, $25, $30 fish dinners. The nicest fish that you can imagine. Completely missing the point of why people began eating fish during Lent in the first place. The reason why people began eating fish and other things like that during Lent was to identify with the poor. That is, when the church was encouraging people to fast during Lent, their message to the wealthy in their communities was, you need to stop eating really, you know, meat, chicken, beef, pork, all of those things. It was really expensive. You need to eat like a poor person. The concession was made that, yeah, okay, a poor person might eat fish. But most of the time, poor people are eating vegetables. They couldn't even afford fish. Well, fish was a concession to the wealthy, that if you wanted to become like a poor person, join them in their poverty, fast in solidarity with the poor, like Christ became poor for you, though he was rich, in order that you might become rich, you had to eat like a poor person. Well, we've forgotten that now. Where I was in Belize, fish was much more expensive than many of the other alternatives, including chicken. But people would go and eat fish. Missing entirely the point of the fast. Part of the question of, okay, how do we fast? If we take all of these ideas that fasting is important as a Christian, as a part of the Christian life, and as a part of our becoming like Christ, and if fasting is important as we are part of the body of Christ, and, and fasting represents an opportunity for us to get close to those who are suffering, get close to those who are in poverty, get close to those who don't have enough to eat, even. What does that look like for us today? In the church, historically, fasting has often been recommended as follows. We're not talking about monks and nuns and super ascetics and that kind of thing. The average person, fasting meant eating less during breakfast and lunch, such that if you were to put breakfast and lunch together, 
it was probably a little bit less than a whole meal. And then abstaining from, from meat or fancy things at dinner. It's not too complicated. But I would push you to do one further, maybe. Thinking especially about what we've talked about, I, I want to suggest a few ideas for how you can think about fasting during this Lenten period. First of all, coming back to the first point, do try and find something that you are particularly dependent on as a body, bodily, fleshly human being and see if you can give it up. I do want to recommend food. It is always most difficult to give up food. You can try and give up sleep. Get up an hour earlier to read the Bible or pray or to spend time with people that you love. You can fast from your money by giving it away. There are all kinds of things that you can do that in your flesh and in your life are particularly difficult for you. You don't have to share it with anybody. I've got a few things that I'm doing this year. I'm not going to share it with you because, you know, Jesus said, don't pray it around before people. But in your own mind, make sure you know what those things are and think about how you can do that. The second thing I want to recommend is to join other people in their fasts. That is, if fasting is supposed to be a corporate enterprise, I want to encourage you to go to the people that you are around and spending time with and say, all right, what are you fasting from? And if they say, well, I'm not supposed to tell you because Jesus said, no. We are one body, you and I. And I am asking you, not because I think it makes you a super Christian, but because I want to come alongside and support you. One of the classic Puritan objections to things like Lent, to liturgy and, you know, many of the things that we as Anglicans do in general, is that, well, this is a bunch of will worship. That is, you're just worshiping God the way you want to. You're doing the things that you want to, and you're doing it, you know, rather than listening to the Lord and what he wants. The funny thing is, is that if we take this approach to fasting, where we allow the church to say, no, these 40 days, we are going to be fasting together, all of us. Put your will aside for when you think you want to fast, and fast during this time. And rather than saying, okay, I'm going to fast the way I want to, no, go to the people closest to you and say, how are you going to fast? It is a way of giving up your will and saying, I am going to submit my life, my rule of life, my pattern of life, and put it into the hands of somebody else. Because the hardest thing for us to give up sometimes is doing what we want to do. Finally, I mentioned that fasting usually should look like what a poor person lives like. I'm not just talking about grad students. But I, I want to ask you, the poor people in your community, do you know how they eat? When I was a missionary in Belize, I knew the answer. A poor person in Belize, when they eat most meals, it's a tortilla. Just a tortilla. Or sometimes it's some rice and beans, but really sort of not many beans. Maybe not much rice either. I had, I had people in Belize regale me with tales of when they were kids and, oh, it was such a delicacy to get a, a single corn tortilla and put a little bit of butter, sprinkle maybe a little bit of salt on it, and that would be your meal. It wasn't just in Belize. My mother-in-law has talked about having, you know, um, ketchup sandwiches. Anybody ever have a ketchup sandwich? 
it was just a piece of white bread, two pieces of white bread with some ketchup in between them, and that was lunch. The question that I have is, in your community, what does a poor person, what, what does a destitute person eat? Is it a cup of noodles? Is it a bag of Doritos? What is it? If you don't know the answer to that, and I'm going to confess, I don't really know the answer to it myself. I would encourage you by the end of Lent to have figured it out. The only way to do that is, as a part of the body of Christ, to draw near and get to know the people in your community who eat like that. To take that as an opportunity to demonstrate the Christ-likeness to which we are called, the character of his body, of the one who made himself like us so that we could become like him. Amen.